This morning, we get to learn how to become Jews. It was probably the first thought on your heart today when you got up, hey, I want to become a Jew today. It says in Romans 1 that the gospel is the power of God for salvation to the Jew first and then also to the Gentile. So we might as well get the first place, right? Where we were last week in the first part of Romans chapter 2, Paul challenged the, the religiously privileged person in his day that was the Jewish person for judging those without his religious background for doing wrong things when he was doing the same things himself. He says that God doesn't judge based on merely being a part of the religiously privileged group. You can't avoid judgment apart from God's grace and God's work in your life not just having a particular label. God judges impartially without favoritism according to our works, he says. So that's what he looks at. Even the pagan Gentiles who didn't have God's written law have the essence of God's law written in their hearts. So in our human nature, we have an inbuilt sense of God's standards even without having it in writing through the Bible, even though it is buried under layers of sin and culture. So... God will judge everyone by the same moral standard, the, the written law, or, uh, uh, whether you have it in the written in writing in the Bible or not. However, the Jew has a greater degree of accountability since he does have God's standards in writing in his law, the Old Testament. For Paul knows the Jewish person has relentless confidence in his favor with God because of his religious privileges, particularly that they were given the law, they were given um, the the priesthood, and they were given all the things to do with the tabernacle and the temple. They were given the sacrifices. They were given circumcision, which is a sign of God's covenant relationship with them. So they, they, they had all these privileges. What Paul wants them and us to know is not to so trust in our religious externals that we dishonor God by not obeying him and thinking that our external things are sufficient to uh, get us favor with God. So we're going to look at Romans chapter 2, verses 17 to 29 today, and uh, I'll pray and then we'll, we'll look at the first chunk of that. Father, we need your help to hear and understand your word, to see Christ in the midst of hard passage dealing once again with sinfulness of, of your chosen people and how that applies to us as your, as your people today. So, Holy Spirit, we invite you, in fact, we plead with you to cause your word to be effectively driven home to our hearts, change and transform us to be more like Christ, to love you more, to hate sin more, to be grateful for your grace. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So we're going to look at the um, first section of, of this passage from verse 17. Through 24 in Romans chapter 2, verse 17 to 24. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you, do you steal? 
You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. So, verse 17. What what is a Jew, anyway? Originally, the name referred to someone who lived in the region where the descendants of Judah, one of the twelve tribes of descendants of Israel, lived. So, Jew, Judah. After the Babylonian exile, it was applied to the Israelites in, in general as the area that they reoccupied was not much more than the original land of Judah, territory of Judah. By Paul's day, Jew had become the common term for anyone who belonged to the people of Israel. So Paul um, says, if you call yourself a Jew, and then he lists five privileges that the Jewish people had, and these were great privileges. First, and this is in verses 17 and 18, that he is a Jew. That was a great privilege. It was a blessing to be a Jew as God had made a special covenant with, with the Jews. They were his chosen people. Second, that he relies on God's law. The law was a blessing from God. It, it distinguished Israel from the nations. The law itself says the law of the Lord is perfect. It, it revives the soul. In Psalm 119, 176 verses extolling the excellence of God's law talks about how great and lovely God's law is and how effective it is at teaching and training us to live in godly lives. Third privilege that the Jewish people had was that he boasts in God. Well, of course, don't boast in your wisdom or riches, God said in Prophet Jeremiah, but boast that you know me, that you belong to me. The fourth privilege in verse 18, that the Jew knows and knew God's will. And fifth, that he approves what is excellent. And he, he knows God's will and approves what is excellent because both of these, because he was instructed by God's law. And because of these privileges, the Jew believes he has these four benefits to offer the world. So we see this in verses 19 and 20. In, in thinking he had these things to offer the Jew was not necessarily arrogant. God had promised that through the Jews, all the nations on the earth would be blessed. So the first benefit he, he believed he had was that he was a guide to the blind, those who don't know the law, those who are spiritually blinded. He was a guide to them. Second, that he was a light in the darkness. He was shining the light of God's goodness and holiness to, to a dark culture around them. In verse 20, the third benefit the Jews thought they had to offer was that he was an instructor of the foolish, which is what I'm doing right now, right? Uh, you're, some of you are awake. That's good. And fourth, he was a teacher of children or immature. He was a kid's worker. He instructed those who didn't know God's law. And he was an instructor and a teacher of others because he had in the law the embodiment or the full content, the full expression of knowledge and truth. So with all this spiritual privilege and, and resulting benefits that you had to offer to the nations, what could Paul possibly find to criticize? Well, in verses 21 and 22, he, he offers some challenge questions. You then, 
you who have all these privileges and who legitimately can and should be teaching others, do you not teach yourself? Are you hypocritically teaching others what you are not willing to obey or to, or to live? Then Paul asks three more questions as examples of ways that the religious person's talk may not match his walk. You who preach against stealing, do you steal? Every, every religious person, every Christian knows that stealing is wrong, right? There's a lot of stealing that goes on from churches. Massive thievery. A friend in a nearby church lost $90,000 due to um, thievery within the church. At our last church, there was a man who used his profession to set up travel for the church from time to time, and he also worked, he also volunteered with the PTA, and it turned out he was misusing funds, and he was kind of, um, it was a shell game, and, and eventually it all came crashing down on him, and so the church was out money, the PTA was out money, and other people were out money. And you can imagine it was not a good testimony for Christ to the community. Another challenge question Paul said to the Jew was, you, you say that one should not commit adultery. Do you commit adultery? There's been too many sad examples of Christian preachers and teachers who taught that adultery is wrong and who have turned around and committed it themselves. And it's common enough where probably a good number of you have in your own experience, whether in family members or your own church experience, where that has taken place, where Christian workers, pastors, missionaries have committed adultery and who clearly know it's, it's wrong. Of course, the hypocrisy in this is incredible as it is destructive. Paul's last challenge question to them is, you who abhor idols, as they should, do you rob temples? <clears throat> How many of you are struggling with robbing temples today? You're good, good people. Were some Jews actually robbing pagan temples? Possibly some were. It, it was a common crime in those days because you could make a lot of money uh, on, the, on the, the black market of the silver and gold and other materials that the idols are made of and, and the, you get from the temple. So some of them may have been doing that. It also could refer to any way that a Jew might profit off of pagan idolatry or pagan temple worship. It's kind of like when Jesus drove out the money changers from the temple in Jerusalem because they had made... The Jewish temple worship a business enterprise. And Jesus said, you have made my house, my father's house, a robber's den. So I don't know. Uh, some Jews may have been secretly selling idols at the cashier desk in their deli along with gum and candy. Or however they were doing it. But they, some, some of them were obviously profiting off of, off of pagan temples. And they hated idolatry on the one hand, but they were profiting from it on the other hand. They wouldn't have an idol in their own home, yet they're willing to profit from the very idolatry they detest. This would be like a Christian today selling pornography or illegal drugs, knowing it's clearly wrong, but doing it. So question is, was stealing, adultery, and profiting from idolatry really widespread among the Jews of Paul's day? Certainly not all of them were committing all these sins. But Paul's main point was, do you violate the very law that you teach? 
He's using blatant and shocking examples to illustrate the principle that it was all too common for their claim about their Jewish advantages not to match their conduct. And then he brings it home in verse 23 to um, this conclusion. Boasting in the law would be fitting if their conduct was in step with it, but their boasting in the law was ruined by their breaking the law. In so doing, they missed the main purpose for which God gave them the law and brought them into a covenant relationship with himself. The main purpose that God had redeemed them, the main purpose that he had given them all these privileges, and that was to bring honor and glory to himself. They were to glorify God amongst themselves and before the nations. Because God is the greatest being in the universe, he's worthy of all glory, honor, and praise. And that's what they were to live for. Instead, they, they dishonored God. They did not glorify him before the Gentiles, the very ones whom they were supposed to be a light to. Where have we heard this before? In chapter 1, verse 21, Paul was talking about the pagans, the Gentiles, who, uh, although they knew God, they did not honor him as God. They turned around and and worshipped the created things rather than him and gave glory to them rather than to himself. Just as the Gentiles failed to give God glory by rejecting his revelation of himself in creation, so the Jews failed to honor and glorify him by not practicing, by not obeying his written revelation of moral standards. And so he says in verse 24, it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Paul is quoting from Isaiah 52 to describe the result of their failure to live according to the law they possessed and knew and boasted in. In Isaiah's day, uh, people were, God's people, the Jews, were being punished for their disobedience to his law, and it provided occasion for God's name to be profaned among the Gentiles. So because they were teaching others what they knew God's law said, and they were not practicing it themselves, God's name was blasphemed, it was reviled and slandered because of them. And today, people love that. The media loves that. When Christians fail, I mean, it's just instant fodder for, for news. And it's, it's, they, they delight in us screwing up. So this brings us to the next section about how do you not do that? Look at verse 25 through 29. For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. So, okay, all of a sudden we're talking about circumcision. That's another thing that you were just woke up today thinking, i got to hear more about circumcision. Man, that's what I'm missing. So you are in, in for a treat. It appears as if Paul just kind of randomly brings it up, but not really. 
because he begins, he says, for circumcision. So he's, he's following, he's connecting with what he was saying before. He's talking about the value of circumcision. He, he brings it up because like the law, they trusted that having it kept, having it, the law, kept them safe from God's judgment and guaranteed his favor. They thought circumcision did the same thing for them. Having circumcision was a protection from God's judgment. So, uh, and God said in, in Genesis 17 that circumcision was a sign of the covenant between him and Israel, and any male who was not circumcised was to be cut off from God's people, Israel. So it's understandable they thought it was pretty important. You can't even be a member of the covenant community if you're not circumcised as a male. So again, Paul brings up circumcision because it was one of Israel's privileges that marked them as God's covenant people, like having the law. But just as having and knowing the law but not obeying it doesn't save you from God's judgment, neither will circumcision if you are a breaker of God's law. In fact, he says in verse 25, if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. Your law-breaking gives evidence that you are not truly one of God's covenant people. And you are essentially a Gentile. You're not part of the covenant community of God's people. For our Christian church culture, if you are living in unrepentant disobedience to Jesus, your baptism becomes unbaptism. You give evidence that you are not united to Christ, that you have not been forgiven and freed from your sin, not received new life through faith in him, as that is what baptism symbolizes. Over the years, I've seen a lot of people... um, just eager to be baptized, who before or after that don't really seem to have any commitment to, to Jesus. It's like they show up on the scene and say, hey, I want to be baptized. And so they kind of answer the questions, and, and then they're, they're all excited about it, and then they just kind of disappear. And, uh, and they, they just live totally like the world. In their case, their baptism has become unbaptism. Just getting baptized doesn't fix you. Paul doesn't mean that people merit or earn salvation by their good works. We have to say that because clearly Paul teaches that is the case in a few paragraphs from now. In chapter 3, verse 28, he says, One is justified by faith apart from works of the law. And he makes that really painfully clear throughout several chapters of Romans. So he's not saying that we're saved by our good works. He is saying a transformed life is essential. And we'll see in verse 29 what that's about. In verse 26, Paul says, If a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? If disobedience on the part of the Jewish people means their circumcision is regarded as uncircumcision, how many times are we going to say that word? Who's on first? then obedience to the law on the part of the Gentile people will mean that his uncircumcision will be regarded by God as circumcision. Got that? Thank you. Yeah. Get some kind of reward for that. Get a t-shirt. For the... For the uncircumcision of the Gentiles to be regarded as circumcision means that in God's sight they are counted as members of God's covenant people. 
they are sharers with the Jews in being God's covenant people. The old covenant forms and symbols, circumcision, the sacrifices, the priesthood, was good, but what God wanted was the obedience of faith from the heart, as we'll see. Then he says in verse 27, Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision, but break the law. This doesn't mean that in the final judgment before God, Gentiles who keep the law will be judging the Jews who don't. They won't be in the, okay, we're the Jew judging section, who the disobedient Jews. I don't picture that's what he's talking about. It means the law-keeping Gentile will be a witness for the prosecution by God in that his, his obedience will be evidence of what the, the Jew ought to have been and could have been. But at this point, I'm, I'm asking, how can a Gentile keep the law? How can anybody keep the law? I mean, if God's standard is perfection, which it is, how, how does anybody keep the law at all? Otherwise, he's going to come under the same judgment as the Jew who's breaking the law. What makes the difference between a lawbreaker and a lawkeeper? In verse 28, no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. He explains further what he means in verse 29. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. A true Jew is one on the inside. A true Jew has an inner Jew. Literally, he's a Jew in secret. You can't see it uh, by just some external mark. True circumcision is an operation of the heart. He's talking about... um, Contrasting that with chapter 2, verse 5, where Paul says, Because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath. It's a matter of the heart. This is what God is after. It's what he's always been after, our hearts. It can only be accomplished by the Spirit, this heart surgery. The letter can't give a new heart. The letter is God's law, which, as we said earlier, was good. The law is good. There is nothing defective in it since it is God's revelation of his will. Paul will later say in chapter 7, the law is holy, righteous, and good. But the letter law has no power in itself to give a new heart. It can't give what it requires. In fact, there are several passages in in the law and the prophets that talk about being circumcised in heart. So even back in in the day, they, they had teaching that the law itself said, You've got to be circumcised in your heart, not just in your flesh. God promised then that one day he would give them hearts by the Spirit so they would uh, at last live according to his standards because they kept failing again and again. God had to send them to exile, and they still came out not faithful to God. So he promises, for example, in Ezekiel chapter 36, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. 
The Lord promised through Jeremiah that he would make a new covenant with Israel by putting his law within them and write it on their hearts. And God says at last, I will be their God and they shall be my people. Paul is saying to the Jew, merely knowing the law and even teaching it doesn't make you a true Jew. Your breaking the law disqualifies you from being a true Jew. And if your circumcision is only skin deep, and you're not obeying from the heart, you're not a true Jew. Being a true Jew is an inside job in which you are given a law-loving heart by God's Spirit. Paul teaches this in, in Romans chapter 8, verses 3 through 4. I think we might have that on the screen. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. So the, the, there was no defect in the law, but because of our sinful flesh, the law short circuits because it can't produce what it, what it requires. What did God do? By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he sent his own son like us in, in weakness, able to be tempted, able to suffer, able to feel pain, able to feel temptation, able to die. Weak like us, except he never sinned. And he sent him for sin, to be a sacrifice for sin. And he condemned sin in the flesh through his death and through his own obedience. He judged it and he conquered it in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. So Christ fulfilled the, the legal demands of the law for us and he fulfilled the uh, moral requirements of the law for us and conquered sin for us so we could be freed from its ensnarement and its power. The Spirit frees us to begin living in obedience to God's law. We don't do it perfectly in this life, but we do it truly as we are being conformed more and more to the image of God's Son. The Spirit leads us in applying Christ's death, the power of Christ's death, to, to killing sin in our lives and to walking in obedience. And part of that obedience is in our repentance because we have a lot of that to do as well. And Paul concludes by saying <clears throat> his praise, the, the true Jew's praise, is not from man but from God. Jesus said of the Jewish leaders of his day <clears throat> that they received glory from one another but didn't seek the glory that comes from the only God. Before coming to Christ, Paul boasted that, hey, I was born of the tribe of Benjamin, I'm born of Israel, circumcised on the eighth day, I was a Pharisee, I, I was a true Jew, he thought. He boasted in his religious pedigree. But the issue for most of us and he, and he utterly repudiated that when he came to Christ. Not, not hating his Jewish heritage, but not trusting in it for his righteousness in favor with God. The issue for most of us may not be that we are seeking people to praise us as much as we assume that if we fit in with the church culture, that means we're okay with God. Like people's opinions matter to us more than God's thoughts about us. We just want to make sure that we're doing the right things and, and people think we're okay. In other words, for us, people are big and God is very small. That needs to be flip-flopped. 
We're, pro- we're so prone to put our confidence in external things, even things which are good, like our baptism, reading our Bibles, going to camps, small groups, attending on Sundays, and that's all good. As long as God is pleased with what he sees in our lives. He sees our hearts completely. I mean, right now, he completely sees every movement of my heart. He knows everything about your heart. So the question is, does God have your heart? Is God the most important being, the most important thing, the most important occupation of your heart and my heart? And if we answer honestly, we'd have to say, um, for fleeting moments, he is. But I really do love him, and I know that's where my heart is supposed to be. The reason that's so important is we will do what our heart desires. We'll do what we want. And so God gives us new hearts to his spirit, so we have a new want to, a new desire to love his law, to obey him. So the question I have for you and I is, are we obeying God's word from our hearts? Are we obeying what we learn in, in real time, not just one of these days after I do everything I want to do, like I get my life, do all the things I want to do first, and then I might start getting around to making God first? There is one person that impresses God, and it's not me. I hate to break that to you. It's not you. It's Jesus. God is really, really impressed with Jesus because Jesus perfectly obeyed him in every way, and he is his son. Through faith in Jesus, we receive the saving benefits of Christ's perfect life and and his death and are united with him and his obedient heart so that Jesus' heart begins to beat with our heart. And only the Spirit of God can do that. There's no external... Mechanism that makes that happen. Baptism is good. We ought to all be baptized in obedience to the Lord, but it's not mechanic. It doesn't happen by just getting in the water. It doesn't happen by just raising your hand or, or taking a step forward. It happens by God's Holy Spirit operation in our hearts. Thank God he gives us his Holy Spirit. Thank God that even though our obedience is very imperfect, horribly imperfect, Yet there's the kernel of true obedience going on. By definition, if you're in Christ, you have an obedient streak in you. What God requires, the law can't deliver. But what God requires, the gospel gives. Thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin became obedient from the heart, Paul says. Let's thank him. Jesus, we thank you for not leaving us in our dull-hearted, hard-hearted, world-loving, sin-intoxicated, self-righteousness, deluded state that we were. And we recognize 
that we still have those battles to fight. Self-righteousness, people's opinions mattering more than you, um, being way more excited about other things than we are about you, not giving time for your word and spirit to saturate our hearts and to transform us. Thank you, Father, for giving us Christ. Thank you for giving us your Holy Spirit. Thank you for giving us the true circumcision of heart, true heart change. Only you could do that. Thank you for saving us. Thank you for making us delight in you. Cause that to increase, Father. May we just be so more and more and more Spirit-led to put to death sin and to love your righteousness and to love your word and to be a community of people who are broken over our sin but really joyful in you. Thank you for your grace. In Christ we pray. Amen.